0: Hello and welcome everyone. My name is Andrew Krause. I'm one of the co-founders here at InventRight and we are going to do a full hour of Q&A on licensing. So uh, we got some cool comments already. Make sure to type your questions into the chat and I'll answer uh, your questions. So just to give you kind of a frame of reference, if you're new to InventRight, um, What we're all about is licensing. So what that means is when you license your product to a company as opposed to starting your own business and making and selling it yourself is it's their money. You don't need to raise money. It's their existing distribution. So if they're in 30,000 stores, you're in 30,000 stores. I like to joke, you can have delusions of grandeur when you're licensing. It depends on the company. For them to sell a million units, 2 million units, 50,000, 10,000, whatever is a lot for that industry is not craziness, because these companies are big. Um, for you to try to do that on your own and start a one SKU, one product company from scratch, it's very difficult. But if they have 80 products, they have the sales, they have the marketing, they have the manufacturing, they have, all, they have the machine basically in place, and your product's just another product in their product line. And that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing, because they got the money machine, and they got the accounting, and marketing and sales and manufacturing and you're just going to plug your product in there and then you don't need to raise money you don't need to hire employees you don't need to run a business so that's what licensing is and then you get a royalty and they pay you royalties quarterly um, the companies that you license to so you can think really big and you don't need to raise millions of dollars quite the contract a lot of our students they are spending 75 bucks on a provisional uh, patent application and a few bucks on a um, on a sell sheet, maybe a virtual prototype, maybe they're making a prototype. But what you're truly selling is the benefit of your product. So you don't need as much as you think. So we have some cool comments in here already. Um, Kevin said, Hi, Andrew. So today I became an invent rights student. That's cool, Kevin. As I've signed up, I like what he, what he wrote here. I've signed up for the one on one coaching. Um, the fear of not knowing has overcome the fear of failure. So uh, he's not afraid of failing anymore. And and I think that's great. The fear of not knowing has overcome his fear of failure. So, you know, let's talk a little bit about that. Thank you for saying that, Kevin. Um, I think a lot of people, when they start to license, they need to redefine what failure is. So reaching out to 30 companies and getting no's from 28 and getting Interest, well, some of them aren't going to reply at all because that's normal. Um, so let's say you get no's from twenty six and then or twenty five and then three um, just didn't reply at all, and then two show a little interest and you end up doing a deal with one. That is success now, even if you get no's from all of them, but you made relationships with these companies because when you send your first product into a company. That's an opportunity to make a relationship. So every time they say no, this is about redefining success. You weren't unsuccessful. You made a relationship. Let's say you got a new um, kitchen gadget and you got into this company and said, no, this one's not a right match for us. And you email them back. Hey, uh, can I send you more? And, you know, in the future, if other products for potential licensing possibilities, and they're like, oh, yeah, sure. That was a success. You didn't get rejected, and even if they don't reply, it's a yes. They took a look at your first one. They said no, so that's fine. So you're making relationships. So you need to redefine what uh, failure is. But to have a coach guide you through all that, Kevin, I think you'll you'll feel really good about it. Um, and I love that fear of not knowing overcame your fear of failure. So um, you know when you're new to this you know, most inventors, like they're living in a fantasy world. So you come up with ideas and making a prototype and coming up with ideas, you're not in the game. When you reach out to your first company, you're in the game. So it's a little scary to go from just being a dreamer, dreaming up new inventions and ideas, and actually getting a bunch of no's from people. And so Kevin, he just made that leap. Because he signed up for our coaching. Or you guys are making that leap. If you're just watching our YouTube show and you're doing this Q&A, maybe you're reading our book, One Simple Idea, and you're getting out there, you're making that leap then too. But once you call your first company or LinkedIn message your first company, that's when you're really in the game. And you should be very, very proud of that. And sometimes it's it's hard to, to get to that point. So for those of you that haven't, um, be patient with yourself. And don't feel like you got rejected because a company said, no, you didn't. You just made a contact. And next time you have another product in that space or the same product, we guide our students to reach back out six or eight months later, the same company that said no. And quite often they'll show interest. Um, I mean, maybe one or two out of 30 might, but that's all you need. You only need one, right? So now you don't want to reach back out to companies that said no, and it won't work because of this don't, that's just pestering them, right? And you couldn't fix that. But a lot of what you're going to get when you reach out for a licensing is you're going to get non-specific no's, not at this time, not a right match for us. And behind the scenes, you don't really know what's going on. They may have actually liked, and it's not the company, by the way, I've been talking a lot about this. It's an individual. So they're a marketing manager, they're a person at the company. And maybe they got three projects going on. They got their bosses breathing down their neck. They've got a bunch of emails. They're very, very busy, you know, and they liked your product, but they didn't have time to take it on. So they gave you a generic answer, not a right match for us. So that's why when you reach back out to them six or eight months later, they might be in a different headspace. And their boss said two weeks earlier, we need new products. So that you got their name, you got their email. That was not a failure, but most people are new. They feel rejected. They feel like they failed. And you just, I'm just saying you shouldn't, if that's the case. So that's great, Kevin, that you signed up for our coaching. That's fantastic. Um, I think you'll be very, very impressed with all our coaches are amazing. Um, So John said, uh, hi, Andrew, thank you very much for doing these Q&A sessions. I watch you on Mondays and Shark Shark Tank on Fridays. Okay well, that's very flattering. Um, As you guys know, you've heard me talk about Shark Tank. I think it, I'm not entertained by it anymore. I find it irritating, but I think it's a very well done show where it's very, it provides you with entertainment. Um, So I think that's fantastic that if you comparing me to a show that that is that well done as far as providing entertainment. Now, a lot of the things that they say on the show, I take issue with, like they always say, do you have a patent on that? And it's like, Really? Is it really that important? Um, Our students just file provisional patents. And a lot of time, companies, they don't want to file a patent, but they'll still pay you royalties in the licensing agreement. And they're like, no, we don't want to pay for a patent. You can if you want, but we don't care. We'll pay you regardless. And they're not saying that on that show. They give you this perception, which is what the general public thinks. Is oh I couldn't possibly license something without a patent. And it's so not true. The perceived protection of a provisional patent for 75 bucks is all you need. That's what all our students do. Now we have students that come on board with us having filed a patent. We're like, great, that's an asset. If you don't license it, it's a giant liability that you spent 10, 15k on a patent. Why not just spend 75 bucks next time? You know? Um, but I take that as a compliment. I did used to watch that show. I don't watch it anymore. I think they've done a lot for people watch that show and they get very encouraged. Um, They're like, oh, you know, they just see people with ideas that are putting themselves out there and makes them want to put themselves out there. So I have a lot to, to thank for that show and the people on that show for encouraging people. It's just the way that that whole thing works, like to me... It's just downright sad that anybody that would think the only way that they can get their product to market is go on a TV show. I mean, that's just sad, you know, Um, and I'm not saying everybody goes on that show thinks that, but there are so many avenues to bring your product to market. The main two are licensing, which is what we guide people to do. And to me, it's way more attractive than Shark Tank because when you license, it's their money. It's their workforce and it's their distribution. On that show, it's like a shark. Do you get the money? Don't get the, get get. They get the money, and then you're starting this one product, one SKU company from scratch. Which, just to let you guys know, retailers don't like you. They don't like one product companies. These are retailers, not the companies you license to. But if you license it to a big manufacturer that it's in a Walmart, a Target, a Home Depot, a Lowe's, Bed Bath Beyond, wherever, or an industrial product. We have students doing industrial products, and Those big companies are in those retailers. They will talk to and take a close look at the products that the company you license to is trying to get in that particular retailer because they might have five or six products already in their stores. And they know that that big company is going to deliver on time that they're going to do what they say they can do, that they can give them the discounts, that they're not gonna have huge quality control issues. And retailers don't like one SKU, one product companies, inventors, um, because they're worried you're not gonna deliver on time. You're gonna run out of money and all these things. All the things that almost always happen to independent inventors when they try to venture their own product. So um, keep that in mind. When you license to a big company, You are that big company and the retailers that they put your product stores in will take that company seriously, but they won't take you seriously for the most part. If you've been in business for six months or even two years and you got this one product, they're like, ah, it's going to be a pain in the book, just just a pain pain in the book, a pain in the butt to put you on the books because, and you're going to be calling me and calling me and I'd rather deal with a vendor that's got, you know, 80 products and I can pick and choose from their product line. And if I want to put the screws to them on pricing, they can handle that and they'll go, well, okay, but if you purchase these two products or whatever the deal, so the buyers, the retail stores like big companies, they don't like rinky-dink companies that they're going to have problems with. And just imagine, I give this as an example, imagine you're the buyer at Bed, Bath & Beyond and every single product in your store had a different vendor. They want to shoot themselves in the head right now. Just go, I can't deal with that. So that's why they, and, and I admire people that venture their own product, make it and sell it themselves, and get some sort of distribution in a retail store. But I'm telling you, they will not keep you in there for very long if you don't come up with a whole product line. Now you're an inventor like, I made this product myself and I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to get it manufactured and I got it in the store. And now why are they kicking me the curb? You know who they're kicking you the curb for? that big company that's coming in and getting more face time with the buyer and say, hey, you know, I want you to keep this product on the shelf. Put these two. I will give you discounts. And they're looking around. Who am I going to kick off the shelf? Because they only got so much room in the store, right? And they're kicking you off with your one SKU, one product company. But if you license to that big company, you are that big company. And not only can they get it in stores, more importantly, they can keep it in stores. So I'm very impressed when inventors can start their own business and sell it themselves and get their one SKU, one product company into a store. But it's next to impossible to keep it in the stores. So that's very, very difficult. So sorry I ramble so much on that. But, um, John, thank you for the compliment. Um, I don't know if if I'm as entertaining as Shark Tank. Probably not as entertaining, but I'm definitely more informational, more real-life advice. But that show is entertaining. So I take that as a compliment. Um, and like I said, they've done a lot to just get people going. Like, maybe I can do this. I got an idea. Like, they've done a lot for inventors just in that. But the way that they bring products to market, to me, is one in a million shot. You know, I'm going to go on TV, you know, to bring my product to market. That's bizarre. Um, uh Okay, well, this one was easy. Uh, Michael said, "Hey, Andrew, can InventRight make a course to help people with uh, patents? It would be it would help with PPAs." Yes, we already have that, Michael. So you can go on InventRight.com and under the under one of the menus, you'll see Smart IP. We created a program with patent attorney Gene Quinn. It's included with our course, with our one on one coaching, but you can buy it all a cart as well. And it'll guide you specifically on how to write your PPA. The one thing that I'm going to add to Smart IP that I'm going to give advice to everybody here, when you're writing your PPA with Smart IP or doing it on your own, or however you're writing your provisional patent application, is the best piece of advice I can give you is don't just try to protect your invention. And I'm saying that to kind of get your attention. So what you want to do, and most inventors don't do this, and this is 80% of writing a good provisional patent, maybe exaggerating a little to make a point, but I'm not exaggerating too much. You can't just write a provisional patent or go to a patent attorney and file a patent and say, here's my widget, patent it. That's BS. That's amateur hours. So what you need to do is you need to think like, here's my widget and here's you need to brainstorm and how could it be knocked off what are all the different ways it could be done that are viable like that are 80% as good 90 100% as good just as good but not the version you're pitching but not don't you know don't throw a version of your product or a variation that's half as good that's just way, that's just becoming obsessive with everything you put in your ppa yes you can put everything in the kitchen sink in there but include those versions they're like 70% as good Um, or better so think about how else could this be done and here's the here's the problem that inventors have inventors are obviously very creative but inventors i've noticed over 21 years lose their creativity when it comes to this so when you've been thinking about it for let's say some inventors have been thinking about their products for like a year two years 10 years you lose your creativity you're like this is what it is this is what it is this is what it is what you need to think about is what else could it be? What are the other variations? And don't go, well, everything else sucks out there and mine's the best. Come up with those other variations. And it's not going to be the version you're pitching because you've already figured out which version you're pitching based on your studying the marketplace. But include those variations, those variants in a provisional patent. So people are all worried, like, I don't know how to file a provisional. Yeah, smart IP or software will help you with that. But you need to invent. So you need to take those blinders off and you need to go, What? how else could this product be done? And throw that all in your provisional. And if you've been thinking about it for a long time, it's a hard thing to do. So this is why a lot of patents are garbage, because people go to attorneys and they go, here's my widget, patented. And a patent attorney that's a bad patent attorney will say, okay, and they won't ask you a bunch of questions. What they should say is they should grill you and say, Give me all the variations. Give me all the workarounds improvements. I want to do a good job for you. But a lot of them, what they do is they just take your money and they file it. And it's, it's garbage because you didn't think about those variations. So they might have done a good job on what you gave them, but you didn't cover those variations. Then some company can just get around you, you know, some other knockoff company or something. So think about those variations. So, Michael, uh, you know, we have what you're looking for. It's called Smart IP. It is on inventright.com. You can find it on there. Um, Nick said, uh, just received my one-on-one program guidebook. That's great. Nick, Nick, it sounds like Nick is a student too. That's fantastic. Nick of ours. So we, we, we call people that are students, people that we're doing one-on-one coaching with. And obviously this is not that this is a free YouTube deal. Um, but that's what, um, Kevin was referring to earlier. He signed up with the program and Nick, I think looks just like he just signed up and he got his guidebook." Um, the, the core benefit, though, of the one-on-one coaching is talking to your coach every single week, emailing him anytime, having him make sure you're on track. It's not about a guidebook. Um, oh, this is a good question. To expand upon Michael's, um, Shook says, uh, hi, Andrew, I signed up for Smart IP, started but felt overwhelmed with the details of my product. How much technical expertise is necessary for a PPA? Does it need to be mechanically right? So one thing when you're filing, a this isn't an hour on PPAs, but I think these are good questions, so I'm happy to answer them. Um, I think one of the biggest things that we bring to the table at InventRight is getting people in front of companies so deals can happen. And People get overly worried about provisional patent applications. So Shook, I'm going to say a few things that'll be encouraging for you so you don't need to stress so much, but I'll give you some specifics too. So I have never in all the years, we've been doing right 21 years, never, ever, ever had a student of ours that filed a PPA, because when you file a PPA and you later file a patent, you're going to reference that PPA. So only if that one year the provisional gives you that's called into question um, before you file a patent, would they, anybody in a, a lawsuit or 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 anything, you would need to claim the benefit of the PPA. I have never had a student that ever had to do that ever. So if you didn't do the greatest job with the PPA and you later filed a, a patent, yeah, if you didn't put something in your PPA, it won't be protected for that date. But I'm telling you, it's never caused a problem for one of our students ever. Could it? Yes, it could. So I'm way more concerned. I was just talking to a student about this just about an hour ago. I'm way more concerned that people make a good marketing presentation so you get interest and they want to see your PPA or any intellectual property. So you have a good sell sheet. You have a good video. And that is like literally 10 times more important than any stupid provisional patent application. So, and by the way, I didn't say this at the beginning. Anything I share with you today is not considered legal advice. Please consult an attorney if you need legal advice. This is just general knowledge. Okay. So do not consider anything that I share with you today, legal advice. Please consult an attorney. I have to give that disclaimer every time. So um, so what, what Shook is getting overwhelmed with the details of your product. So when you're filing a patent or a provisional, this is, a late, this is not a way an attorney would represent it, but this is the way I'm going to explain it. You don't patent your product. You patent a piece of it that has functionality and utility. So we have students all the time. They don't understand the full workings of this device or that device, but they understand the piece of it that they changed. And you need to cover that in your provisional application. What has that new functionality utility? Oh, with this hinge, this is what it does. It makes it so you don't scrape your knee or whatever it is. You know, it's, let's say it's a sporting good product. And this hinge here, this plastic hinge, is will prevent you from getting injuries, and you explain that. So if you're covering the, so you don't need to, let's say it's electronic, know everything about electronics and cover every little detail. You're covering your piece that is different, right? And the functionality and the utility of that. So hopefully, um, like, so what Shook is saying is, does it need to be mechanically right? Um, You need to, yeah, you, somebody should be able to take a look at it, and go, oh, we're going to throw a hinge over there that's going to protect you from scuffing your knee when you're playing volleyball or whatever with these new knee pads. I'm just making up random stuff here. Um, So if you do that, Shook, you're probably doing a pretty good job. And if you think about the variations like I talked about, you're doing a great job. Tons of people spend $20,000 with a patent attorney. The inventor didn't give it to the patent attorney. The patent attorney didn't do that. And they have a $20,000 piece of junk because there's so many obvious workarounds for the product. And if there's five other ways of doing your product that are just as good as yours, your patent's freaking useless. I have to say that. So you want to think about those variations. Now, has that ever bit one of our students in the butt with not doing a perfect PPA shook? Never. So, you know, don't get too obsessed with it. Show, you know, what you're, what you're doing there what is your point of difference? What f- new functionality and utility? And it's very different when you're filing a provisional as opposed to um, doing a marketing piece. There, it's all about, you know, what's the benefit of the product, you know? So if it's a new type of knee pad that when you're playing volleyball, you won't get the same injuries, you're marketing that. And in the patent, it's kind of like this really boring technical thing where you're like, you're, you're stating that it prevents injuries, but you're showing like, oh, this is how it does it. And it can be very um, engineering-like and boring. But you don't have to be an engineer to write a provisional patent. We have um, – we've had students that didn't have a GED. I've never had a student ever that couldn't use our smart IP solution and file a provisional patent, Shook. So now, do people get overwhelmed? And like you have a coach, right, event right and you're talking to them. And the coach is, no, 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 I know your product well you know, you're, these are the main three things about your product. Like these are the things you need to emphasize in your provisionals. So we coach people in a non-legal advice kind of way for, for, for covering, uh, things that have functionality and utility in their product. Like, well, this is your marketing. This is what you're protecting. So hopefully that's helpful. Shook quite, what I try to do is I try to answer people's questions, but make it valuable for everybody. So hopefully that was valuable for everybody. Realizing the patent, provisional patent is something anybody can do um, and that the marketing is actually more important and that you're not really covering, I like to put it this way, this is not legal terms, you're not patenting your product or the invention, you're patenting a piece of it, that it's not the same invention without that piece. So you're looking to protect those pieces, one piece or multiple pieces, different variations of how you're doing it. You could have two completely different methods for accomplishing the same thing and throw them in the same provisional. So, um, hey, Andrew, what this is from Paul. What are some of the options if your preferred contact or the person who you think will look at an idea? Um, If he won't accept your connection and you don't have premium on LinkedIn. So what Paul's referring to is he's reaching out on LinkedIn. We highly advise our students. We have this really cool separate program that Benjamin Harrison runs, and it's included with our coaching program called Smart Pitch. Specifically, all the techniques for reaching out um, on LinkedIn for licensing. Because could you be more specific? How to use LinkedIn specifically for licensing? And um, you know, one of the things I'll share one tip with you, Paul. People, when you send a connection request on LinkedIn. Um, Benjamin believes, and I agree with him, do not send a custom connection request like with this big, long ask. So you can type in like paragraph, I want to send my thing to you, blah, 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 and then click re- request a connection with them on LinkedIn. What Ben advises people is don't do that because like you don't even know them and you're already asking them for a bunch of stuff, right? So instead, just connect with them. Don't add any special request or even say anything about what you're connecting about. Let them connect with you. And then at least three or four days later, wait at least that long before then you reach out. Now it's an outreach to somebody that's already part of their network. And I know that sounds funky, but it works. We found that that works. Um, the premium thing, I haven't found it to be worked. The only thing I've got with people with premium where you pay, like we advise our students just use LinkedIn, the free version that you do not need to pay for any of it. So when you pay for LinkedIn Premium, the only thing I've ever got with the in it's kind of they call it an in mail message is spam, which somebody blatantly promoting stuff. So I I don't advise that people get the premium version. I don't think it's necessary. Now we guide our students. Look, you might reach out to 30 companies on LinkedIn and 15 will connect with you. And then maybe of those 15, 10 will get back to you. And if they're not connecting with you on LinkedIn or not getting back to you, pick up the stupid phone and call them. And we guide our students on how to reach out to companies, how to get past the gatekeeper to help you and to get to the right person at the company. You can also send emails and how to approach all that. So, you know, sometimes they won't accept. It. Some people, they're, they're on LinkedIn and they only go there when they think their job is in jeopardy. Other people are on there every day. Other ones check it once a week. So if you send a request and they haven't got back to you in a week, they may only go on their LinkedIn every two weeks or once a month. So uh, that's it's such a cool um, way to connect with really high level marketing managers. I highly recommend it. So, but you also may be doing something wrong. You may be sending this rambling um, connection request. We suggest don't say anything. Just try to connect with them, you know, and see if they they add you. Barbara said, where do I search for patents on similar products? Well, Barbara, one thing um, that I'll educate you and everybody about is when you come up with an idea, the first thing you should do is you should never do a patent search first. You should always do a market search. Get on Google Images, get on Amazon. Google Images being my favorite and look at everything else in the space. So a market search is your first thing to do when you have an idea. Never a patent search. Who cares about that? That's a freaking mess. You know, I'm exaggerating to make a point again. I'm not saying don't do a patent search. I'm saying it's never the first thing to do. So when you come up with an idea, most of you haven't done this and you already have an idea if you're on here probably, but next time you come up with an idea, the second you come up with it, if possible, or the same day or the next day, get onto Google Images and look at all the products in that space. Now, people do that and they do it with the wrong mindset. They go, Let's say you got a new barbecue special. Oh, that one sucks. That one, mine's better than that. Mine's better than that. Mine's better than that. That's stupid. That's the amateur hour. Now, what you really want to be doing is going. oh, I see there's ones over there. There's about five that do that. They're at a lower price. There's ones over there that do that. Ones over there. Well, I think mine fits in here. Or you know what? Mine's a lot like these, but I got this little extra benefit. So you don't need to prove there's nothing like your product. Actually, when there's things somewhat similar to it in some way, that's a good thing. And because risk adverse companies can look at those products and go, well, God, there's like eight companies selling that kind of thing, and and Bob here's got that little extra something to it. So we didn't want to get in that space because kind of generic, but now we can have a point of difference, or there, it's fairly different, but it fits like here between these products and these products. So that's what you're looking at. So um, I'm going to answer your question by telling you, which most inventors are when they're new. To this you're in the wrong mindset, Barbara. Now you know, this isn't a two-way communication, people type in questions. So you you might not be Barbara, you might have done all that market research, but I've found, so I'm just stating in broad, it's not specifically you, Barbara. Most inventors do a piss, piss, piss poor job of their market research. Wrong mindset, not really looking at everything. I can't tell you how many times I've talked to inventors where they tell me what it is, and I can just get it from a verbal quite often, and I know what it is. And I type in some keywords and Google Images, not regular Google, Google Images. And I'm like, what's this? What's this? And I'm like, and they're like, oh my God, something exists." And I'm like, yeah, this is pretty much exactly what you were talking about, but that's not a bad thing. Like, what's your point of difference? And, they're, and I could see they have a point of difference there. I'm like, well, you just need to keep inventing. You need to go a little further. Um, so Paula, Barbara, your first thing is never a patent search. It's a market search. Now, if you do the market search, you can do a patent search and anybody can do a patent search. And so Google patents is without a doubt easier than the USPTO.gov. USPTO.gov is the patent office website, but Google patents is easier. So Barbara, I would start there and, and do a, a patent search on there. But then people don't know what they're searching for. You know, um, sometimes people see a picture and then they freak out thinking, oh, the picture looks somewhat similar. But when you look through the claims... Um, it's like, well, that claim's not a problem. That claim's not a problem. That claim's not a problem. It's like, okay, this product's not a problem. So people will see a picture and they'll go by the picture and you can't go by that. Um, sometimes the claims are hard to read. They're supposed to be easy to read, but a lot of patent attorneys don't do a good job and they make it very confusing. So my advice on claims is hopefully it's only two or three sentences each claim. It can be definitely longer. You read through the claim and you're like, like you have, have, have obsessive compulsive disorder. So you read, let's say it's three sentences. You read through it and you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. You read through it again, again, again. And it's like the fifth time you read it, you're like, oh, they're just protecting that hook there. I, I remember we had a student once and he had something, I'm not giving anything away, to do with baseball. And, and, and he was really concerned about this patent. And he started reading through the claims. And then he realized that there was just this hook and that was all they got protection on. He's like, well, that's not a problem. I'm not doing it that way. And he wasn't worried about it anymore. So, um, but they're confusing. So read a claim like five times over and over and over again, right in a row, and then go, really what? Oh, that's what they're protecting. Oh no, that's not a problem. And then go to the next one, the next one. Um, but you looking at the pictures first is a good thing to do, but don't make assumptions based on the pictures. And that's what, and then people read through the description. You got to read through the, the, the claims. Um, that's, that's the meat and bones. Also another mistake that great tip um, people make is when you file, when somebody files a patent after 18 months, it can take two or three years or four. It used to take four or five, sometimes ridiculous. Now it's between, I would say one and three years. Don't quote me on that finger, but that seems to be outright right. Before the patent office gets back to you, And then the patent examiner and your patent attorney, this is my layman's terms way of explaining, will have an argument about what you're going to get protection on and what you aren't. And those are called office actions. And so what happens is when you file a patent, 18 months after you file it, it'll get published. Now, the patent office hasn't reviewed it yet. and, And what people do is they see these published patents that have not been issued. They're not granted patents. And it looks like, oh, my God, this inventor's got this incredible protection. And, but it doesn't say it's issued yet. So they might not get any of those claims. They might only get a few of them. So pay very close attention to see if it's issued or if it's pending. If it's pending, almost every time when a patent examiner looks at a new patent, they will just, it's really weird and I'm always amazed that patent attorneys don't tell inventors this because the inventor freaks out. Um, and they will just reject all the claims at the beginning. And then the attorney's like, oh, we got all the claims rejected. I think some of them, not to beat a patent attorneys, they do it to come in there and be the hero. But really, if you were really educating your clients, you would let them know that 99% of the time they'll just reject all the claims outright the first time. And it's like, well, that's not even a review, Andrew. Like, That's and it's just the way the patent office works, you know, and then there's this back and forth argument and your attorney's charging you for that back and forth argument. Usually some of them don't, but most of them do for those office actions, which is another place where attorneys sometimes aren't completely up front. They say they say this is the cost, but they don't give you the cost a year, two, three years down the line when the patent office gets back to have that argument with the office actions and the cost of your patent can double that way. So they, they 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 quote you $6,000, but there's another $6,000 in office actions that go back and forth. I really hate it when patent attorneys do that. But why aren't inventors asking questions? How does it work? When do I get charged and for what? And so never hesitate to ask a patent attorney those questions, but better yet, don't run around filing patents, file a provisional patent for 75 bucks. A patent attorney will typically charge for a provisional only, Eight hundred to twenty five hundred dollars. Well, seventy five dollars is a hell of a lot better than that, right? And then patents can be eight to twenty thousand dollars. Eight being extremely low, ridiculously low, but you can find patent attorneys that do that. So, um, Barbara, uh, do a market search first. You asked about a patent search, and then after that, you can do a patent search. Okay, um, and use Google Patents. That's that's a nice place to start if you're a beginner. Um. Okay. Too many. We got to move on to some questions outside of patents because it's going to be like a patent hour. Um. I just want to give you guys some variety. Uh, okay. Daniel said, "Hi, Andrew. Uh, it's kind of legal stuff again, but I'll answer this one because it is. We're we're changing it up a little bit." Daniel said, hi, Andrew, a company has asked me to sign their NDA before discussing ideas, which I did. Uh, NDA is a non-disclosure agreement for you, those that don't know what that is. I sent my sell sheet, but they're now asking me to send my entire PPA, including drawings, good idea or bad. I think it's perfectly fine for asking them to, to send that, but I would never in a million years send it, and not for the reason why you think, because it doesn't move the deal forward. You're not selling your provisional patent. You're selling the benefit of your product. So, if you sent them an intriguing marketing piece where they're like, oh, this is an interesting product, I think you can sell this, you need to get on the stupid phone and talk to them. And inventors will try to go back and forth. So, companies will ask you for things and they don't know how to move it forward quite often. So, let's say the marketing manager, they like your product. And maybe the company's licensed 15 products, but this particular marketing manager has never done a licensing deal. They're asking you stupid stuff like to see your PPA, which it is stupid. Um, and I'm just saying, using the word stupid just to be funny and get your attention, but it, it doesn't move the deal along, you know, and, and to evaluate a product based on what you filed in a provisional is, doesn't make any sense. People think they're licensing their patent, they're not. They're licensing the benefit of the product. So companies don't do this as often as you think, but sometimes they'll say, send me your patent, send me your prototype. And we tell our students, never, ever do that. Not because they're going to steal your idea, but because it doesn't move the deal forward. So get on the phone with them. Now, here's the funky thing, when they, which is not typical, but when they do say send me your patent and your prototype or one or the other, and you get on the phone with them, literally our negotiation coach, Paul, has told me this, half the time they don't even talk about that. They didn't know how to get the conversation started, but you're falsely believing that's what's totally important to them. And and so I'm not saying it's not important to them, uh, Daniel, but what I'm saying is, you need to be more responsible for moving the deal forward than they are. This is, what, this is why students outside of our program typically don't close deals. They might get a deal on the table, but they muck it up. They falsely believe, and this is completely false, that the company will guide you. They will not freaking guide you. They will guide you into a deal fizzling out most of the time. Only the most interested company can you get a deal done with them if you don't do and say the right things on your side and get them going down your direction. In our, case, in our students' case, that is the direction of doing a deal. And that is the path or 10 steps that we teach in all the getting back to the negotiations. We have specific approaches for different things that come up when a company shows interest. And you're pulling them through your process just as much as they're pulling you through theirs. But quite often, they don't have a process. Okay, you have to understand that. They don't have a process and they're asking you random stuff and you can redirect the conversation and they will not get mad at you. Okay. They will not get mad at you, but you need to know how to direct that. And that's very hard for somebody that's new to this to direct that conversation. So, um, Daniel, uh, do not send them your PPA say you want to get them on the phone to talk with them about the product. I have some questions for you. I'm sure you got some questions for me. I'd be happy to talk about the intellectual property at a later date But at this time, I'd like to talk to you about the product and how it fits in with your product line, things like that. Get them on the phone and talk to them. But and do this to like just try to go back and forth with email. That's a big mistake on your part. You're you're killing the deal when you do that. Okay. so. uh, Okay. let's see. Let's get some variety here. Okay, a lot of PPA stuff, since let's move on to some other topics. Uh, Zabia? Um, Hope Thomas? Uh, How beneficial is it to have a trademark kids book series out when you're trying to license items related to the book series? Oh, that's a good question. So sometimes people like they've got like a character or concept or something and there is no TV show. There is no book. And so here's my response to that. So I get this question fairly often Zavia. Um, if it's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, if it's cars, if it's Mickey Mouse, these are all things that people are familiar with. And so um, when people are familiar with those things they might be like oh yeah that's that's fascinating but to say look i've got this i'll give you an example like ugly dolls right so if the product stands up on its own like it's gross it's funny it brings a smile to your face and the character or whatever is like could be on a t-shirt or a coffee mug or a product or a doll and people just look at it and go oh that's cute or gross or ugly or edgy or whatever it is you're doing good but you can't like find a company to license your product that has this really intricate confusing backstory now yeah if you've published a line of books and people really know that backstory and then you approach companies that are that are making merchandise, they'll be like, wow, great. Like you've sold 2 million books and, or there's a TV show or whatever, but some products can just stand up on their own. Like it's, it's funny. It's gross. It's ugly. It's, 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 it's cool. It's uh, brings a smile to your face. So if the product stands up on its own, you don't need the book in order to do the merchandise first. But if it's this really confusing backstory, that's not easy to understand. That's not going to work. It's going to be really, really hard, right? And it's not like the company that's making the merchandise is also going to publish a book for you, right? So I, I love that question, Zavia. Hopefully that was helpful. Barbara said, thank you. You're welcome, Barbara. Um, uh, Jack, Jock said, a tool company, Snap-on, sent me papers to fill out for an NDA. I, I'm Am I safe with a provisional patent? So, um, you know, a provisional patent is just perceived protection. So all I can say, Jacques, is, and I'm not talking about inventors. I've talked to inventors that say wacky stuff, get the company interested, and then they go, I want a half a million dollars. And then I've heard stories where the company is like, oh, my God, we just spent $10,000 researching this, and now you're a nut job. We wish you knew you were a nut job earlier. And we're going to find a way around you. Screw you. And I've, I've, I've seen that happen never with an invent right student. But I've seen inventors like tell me their story. And I'm like, oh, my God, you act like an absolute nut job. And you got them spending a ton of money and you didn't let them know what you're looking for. And because if you told them you're asking for a half million up front, they would have said, take a hike, buddy. And, and this is on a product that earn you easily that and royalties over time. Um. So but I've, so this is what I can say, Jacques, so I can't speak for the general public. I have never had a student of ours that got knocked off by a company that they presented to, a potential licensee, in 21 years that I know of, because our students conduct themselves professionally. So one of the best forms, this probably wasn't the answer you thought I'd give, one of the best forms of protection when you're licensing is to conduct yourself professionally. Not about PPAs, not about non-disclosure agreements, not about any of that. Now, are those forms of protection? Yeah. So filing a provisional patent for 75 bucks, having a paper trail on what you send them and when, all the emails, that's protection. Um, usually their NDAs will protect them, not so much you. Um, it just, you know, sometimes you think inventors freak out, says that we can't agree to keep what you send us confidential, things like that. And I'm like, you got your PPA, you know, Um and again, anything I share with you tonight should not be considered legal advice. Um, so are you safe? It depends on how you conduct yourself. You know, if you want to be in this business, um, do not expect like if you like I'll give you an example. If you open up a sandwich shop, would you want to guarantee that no sandwich shop could open up within two miles of you? That'd be a ridiculous expectation, right? And if you want OK with that, OK, that risk of opening up a sandwich shop, you shouldn't be in business. Same thing with licensing. If you know you can't, you can't expect that nothing bad will ever happen. But when you cover your your butt every which way till Tuesday, you filed your provisional patent, you've created a paper trail with email, and that's what most of our students do. Those two things, um, you know, the NDA probably isn't protecting you. I haven't seen the Snap on NDA. Um, it's probably protecting them. Sometimes it's mutual. So people have this perception that signing companies NDA is going to protect them. And quite often it isn't. But your provisional patent, your paper trail is your protection. And all, when I can say it hasn't happened to one of our students in 21 years, where when inventors are new to this, they think, oh, all these companies will screw me if they can. That's so much BS. Now, what I will say is, I'm not saying about Snap-on, but tool companies are harder. Um, tool companies, they, they're more patent obsessed. It's really important to them. Um, so it just is what it is you know, and, uh, tools are like tool or tools harder than kitchen gadgets. Yeah, they are. It's harder category, but it is what it is. So are you safe? I I don't know. I, I think you're relatively safe, but I can't say nothing bad will ever happen to you. That's not what you asked. Um, but, um, yeah, if you filed a provisional patent application, I think you're doing pretty, doing pretty good. You're creating a paper trail of email doing pretty good. Um, Max said, uh, awesome job, Andrew, on explaining the process. You're welcome, Max. Thank you. Um, okay, Barbara said, how do you go about figuring out COG, cost of goods sold, and do you need a sell sheet? Do you, need, do you need to for a sell sheet and pitching? No, you don't need to. Don't speculate or put that in any sort of pitch. Your, your pitch to the company is showing them how, what their customer would see. Right. So it's an advertisement for their customer. If it's a kitchen gadget, it would be showing it to the person that's working in the kit. Like it's an advertisement. Right. And so you're not putting in there any like sales pitch or, oh, I know this can be made for a dollar. You could put something like that in the email. But Barbara, one thing that I'll say is just by looking at similar products, you can figure out like, well, that thing's made for 1995. And I only have I don't know, it's not that much different about the same amount of material. could even be a different category. And usually very gross way of looking at it is it's a five times markup. So selling for $10, they probably made it for $2 or less in most categories. That's just a crude way of looking at it. But I, I would – so when they ask you, you can say things like that. People are like, I can say that. Say, well, there's that product and that product and, you know, I'm just changing this and it's selling that at retail – so at a five-time markup, it's selling for ten bucks retail. I think you could probably make it for about two bucks, and let them go out and get some quotes and determine that. You know, don't. But it's okay to make those crude um, val uh, assessments like that and cost of goods sold. It's okay. Our students do that all the time. You know, because if you go to a contract manufacturer, they're not going to give you a decent price that this big company would get. So don't go getting a quote from them and then give this ridiculous price to companies like, whoa, that's too much. Nobody's That's going to no profit in it for us. Let them figure it out. Okay, but you can make general statements if they're kind of concerned. And they're like, oh, well, that proves because there's that product over there, 1995. And I see that it, there's a lot of similarities. So yeah, you're right. So yeah, we're going to bother to get a quote ourselves, you know, or talk to you more about the product, move it forward. Maybe they do something later. So that was a good question, Barbara. Um, OK, uh, Michael said it's patent related, but it's kind of like marketing related. So I, I like this question. I'm confused a bit. Let's say a company has moved forward with your idea and paid up front for a patent. So first of all, Michael, uh, companies, we don't advise our students to have the company pay for the patent. So you always want it to be in your name. They would give you the money, whether it's an advance on royalties or an advance, or maybe you're paying half, they're paying half, and you're going to file a patent and put it in your name. And under the licensing agreement, they have the rights to manufacture it. So that's how it works. So they're not going to pay up front for the well, they might give you the money to do it. Okay. Then you wrote, how do you protect your idea within the three years until it's issued? Will they will they sell it in the meantime? Absolutely. I mean, to sit around waiting three years for a patent issue, most products are not patented at all or patent pending. And maybe that's the life cycle of the product. I don't know. Maybe it sells for 10 years but you've got that patent pending status. So yes, and they'll pay you and the licensing agreement will obligate them to pay you. And that's very normal and typical. So I love your question because I think it really helps a lot of other people who are probably thinking the same thing. That was a really good question. These are all really good questions, by the way. Um, No such thing as a dumb question. Um, Oh, that's good. Jay said, my name is Jaden." Um, I'm a 15 years old inventor and you all have been a a big help exclamation mark. You're well, you're welcome, Jaden. I really appreciate that. We've had some students that were 15, 16, um, and were working on their own. They got their parents permission. Um, and then we've had a few students that I think seven and like 12 now they were working with their dads. It was funny. We had, um, both girls, both working with their dads. On girly products, and one was seven, and one was twelve, and they both licensed products. One within a month of each other, it was kind of a trip. Um, so, Jane, what I'm going to advise you is what I advise all our young students is: do not ever hesitate, be shameless about working that 15 year old angle. Say, you know, I'm in high school, I'm 15, and I'm a pro- make I'm a product developer. Don't say inventor. And I have a product's right match for you. There's going to be so many people that are thinking like, damn, I wasn't that motivated when I was 15. They're going to really admire you. And, and some of them have kids. So, so that touches their heart. Don't, there's nothing wrong with working that angle a little bit. And they'll offer you a little extra advice here or there. So don't hesitate to play that. And when you do a licensing deals, you're going to have to work that out with your parents, of course. Because um, if you're under 18... You know, the deal probably have to be with your parents, but um, you can work something out there. So I think that's really cool, man. And use the angle a little bit. You don't have to, but I think it'd be good to to state you're 15 because people will help you. um a few people not because of that, maybe, but I think more people will help you. I think it'll help you more and it'll hurt you. So don't hesitate. I've seen it work pretty well for some of our folks that were really young. Um, uh. Let's see. Scuba Steve Hander, I read something online that stated first-time inventor can get a lawyer through the USPTO pro bono. That means get a patent filed for free. And can you get your first patent filed for free? Do you know anything about this? Um, Yeah, the patent office, it's not through the patent office. They have a program. I don't know if it's really them where they have these patent attorneys that have... uh, said, okay, we'll do it pro bono. I see that as a waste of time, to be honest with you. So first of all, you need to be a very low income level to qualify for that. But what's the point? Why do you need it? So, and people are like, what? Free patents? Like, I want that. It's like, it's a waste of time. You know, so if you can file, the patent office has already gave you a better tool. If you can file a patent, a provisional patent for 75 bucks and say patent pending for an entire year while you shop and see this interest, if there's interest, you're going to get the company to give you the money to pay for the patent. Why do you need to be doing pro bono work with um, and filing full utility patents with it? First of all, you have to be pretty broke to qualify. So you might qualify, but it's a waste of your time. Like in the time you're messing around with that, you could have worked on licensing three products. So that's my bias take. Do I think that for some people that might be useful? Yeah, I think if you're like venturing your product, manufacturing and selling it yourself and you're half broke. But then... Here, then that doesn't make sense either because you can't venture and sell a product yourself with to the ma- the your income level. We have to be so low to qualify for the, the patent office pro bono program. And it probably takes so long to get that thing filed. You, you wouldn't be having, you wouldn't have enough money if you're at a low enough income level to be, you shouldn't be venturing your product anyway, because it costs a ton of money to make and manufacture a product yourself. So, I don't see that making a lot of sense. Um, Do I think it's cool? Yeah, it's cool they offer it. But it's just like free stuff for free stuff's sake. Like, are you trying to license the product or are you just trying to get free stuff? So I think it's a good question, um, Steve. Um, But there's my, you probably not expected take on that. But it does exist. Um, So if you type in like patent office or USPTO pro bono program, you'll find some stuff on that. Maybe I'm not thinking about that right. Maybe there's an angle there that makes sense. Um, now, I guess you could utilize it if you did a licensing deal, file a provisional, then, I mean, in theory, um, the company gives you the money to file for the PAD, use the pro, gro- pro bono program, and then you keep that money or something. But, you know, I think you need to be honest with your licensee if you're filing a what they think is a strong PAD with an attorney that's working for free. I, I think just ethically, I think you need to explain that and be honest about that, but... You know, uh, so, yeah, I you can see I have mixed feelings about that. But that's an interesting thing you brought up and people want to know about it. You just help them out. So thank you. Um, OK, uh, Julie said help! Exclamation mark. So many white labels. How do I find company contacts when a company is owned by a parent company? Yeah, it's a good point. Um, well, Sometimes, you know, it'll say distributed by and then you need to ask them and go, who's, you know, who's the company making this sort of thing? Um, So you just usually can figure it out with doing some research, you know, where when you see a particular company and you look them up and, you know, I I, I don't really know what you're talking about, Julie. So many white labels. I, I know what you're saying is, I don't know if you're talking about like their house brands. Like there's a lot of companies that will make it for somebody else and they'll just slap their lame name on it and they're marketing it. So, but the company, if you think about it, if they're the ones, not just distributing it, but marketing it, they're still right the company to reach out to. And then if they say, Oh no, we're just getting paid to do that for these guys. We'll see if they can get it from them. That's the best you can do. You know, you got to do a little bit more digging, but I get what you're, I very much get your point, Julie. It's part of the game that can be a little bit frustrating, with products being white labeled. But usually our coaches can guide the students to figure out who uh, the company is. It's kind of a general question. I'm sorry if I'm not giving the, I would say tonight, that's probably not giving the best answer because it really depends. I would really need to like look at a particular product and go, oh, no, no, this is how you'd figure out that. So you kind of need to figure out a case-by-case basis. Um, I wish I could give a broad answer that would help you and everybody else, but it's really kind of, it's more of a case by case thing. Um, so Justin said, with the InventRight team, how does your compensation work with coaching? We don't ask for any percentage whatsoever. So, um, you know, there's these invention promotion companies that say, you know, give us ten or twelve thousand, we'll do all the work for you, and we want uh five percent of your royalties, or we, no, we want half of your royalties or whatever, and it's just deployed to sell you a service to pretend like they're working on your product and they're not working on your product at all, you know? So that's something that, that, that happens. And so we don't want to be anything like that. We take no percentage. Our students keep a hundred percent of anything they license. So it's a flat fee. If you go on, um, and you click on coaching, you can see our professional inventor one-on-one coaching program there as well as our Academy. We never ask for anything from our students. We also don't try to sell you other stuff while you're members with us. So it's very transparent. Um, But I would go to inventright.com, click on Contact Us, book an appointment with an advisor, um, Justin, and they can explain everything to you there and explain how it works. And, you know, if if you're just looking now and you're like, I wouldn't be signing up now, Sylvia can talk to you and explain how it works. And she will not follow up with you. Don't you want to get rich? How come you haven't signed up yet? We don't say any of that stuff. We're really, really chill. So you could have a nice, friendly conversation with Sylvia. She's our main advisor And she could explain how the program works and you could think and figure out if it's right for you. And I think that's a good thing to do beyond just looking at the web pages, because it's it's pretty amazing the extent to which we help people. People are always blown away. They're like, really? You do all that? And I think talking to Sylvia is the best way to accomplish all that. I'm not going to do it here because you guys are here to get questions answered. I don't want to give a big sales pitch about our program. Um, Daniel said, thanks for the advice, Andrew, exclamation mark and three thumbs up. Thank you, Daniel. Appreciate it. Um, uh, Max said, very broad question, but I love it. Uh, can you explain how much a market analysis can help inventors product? So when you take a look at all the similar products in that space, let's say it's a kitchen cutting board, you need to know every freaking kitchen cutting board out there. So how it can help you market Max. Sorry, um, is one, a lot of the marketing is going to be the same. Like you see all the marketing for kitchen cutting boards, and you're like, oh, I see that, I like that product shot. So I'm gonna put my product like that. And I'm gonna use some of the same marketing, but I'm gonna just gonna change it up a little bit. Some of it you'll just do the exact same marketing, but you'll use some different um, benefit statements because with your point of difference on it. So it really helps you dramatically with how are they doing the marketing? How, how do I need to do my marketing a little bit different? A lot of it's going to be the same. Like, well, I like that product shot with how they did that kitchen cutting board. So I'm going to use a product shot like that when I get my graphic designer to do that. And I like that benefit. I like that bullet point there. I got that same benefit. It's going to be one of my bullet points. It's not my big, like unique benefit in that showing how my product's different, but um, it's it's showing the uh, another benefit of the product. Because sometimes you'll do a product and like, You'll see another product. You're like, oh, I got those four benefits, but I got my one really unique one too. And you'll include those other benefits in there as well. So it can help you from the marketing standpoint, it can help you understand all the prices and and it can help you understand who your potential licensees are. Because when you're doing that research, you're finding your potential licensees, you know, that are making products somewhat in that same space. So it helps you market, Mark Max, it helps you every which way till Tuesday. It really does. And most inventors are afraid of doing that wrong attitude. I'm going to prove my product's great and everything else sucks. Um, And it can take time. It can take, I don't know. I mean, you should be spending like four or five hours on that. you know. And people just want to put on blinders because they don't want to find something similar because they're afraid. Don't be afraid. It's the real world that a marketing manager lives in. They know what other products are out there. You're not going to hide hoping they don't know about that other product. They know. So you have to deal in the real world with the real products out there and you have to know them and then you can adjust if necessary so that when you're sending something out, they're like that product that's the same as those five other products. He doesn't have a point of difference, but you did your research, you made a good marketing pitch and you're aware of those products and you switched up how you're, you're marketing it so that they don't have that reaction. Just reply. Oh, I'm not interested because they're like, this dude didn't do his research. They're thinking privately, but they're not telling you that. So, So, I want to make an ask for you guys. You guys are saying some thank yous. One way you could really thank me is to um, give this video a thumbs up. More importantly, if you're not already subscribed, click the subscribe button. We're, I think, just about, I haven't looked in a little while, just about 50,000 subscribers. We'd like to hit 80,000 sometime soon. So, by subscribing and watching our videos and clicking thumbs up on all the ones you like, if you don't like one in particular, Don't click a thumbs down unless you really like if you're like, oh, my God, this is so wrong, you know, but I don't think you'll find those on our site. Then you click a thumbs down. But that's the way you can say thank you to me for spending a full hour answering your questions for free. If you want to, we coach mentor Inventors. We have students licensing products all the time. That's our business. And if you go to inventright.com, you can learn more about that. If you book an appointment with Sylvia, she's super friendly. You might be like, I'm not ready yet, but I want to talk to her and get a clear picture of how these guys can help me. So don't hesitate to book with her. She'll spend a full half hour talking to you. Um, So uh, (laughs) Max wrote, LOL, this is so wrong. Uh, So thank you for all the nice things you guys are saying. I really appreciate it. Um, Yeah, thank you. Uh, Somebody said rock on to 80,000. Yeah, Um, it's to have, you know, some of you, like I watched my, Some of my eight year old daughter, we try not to let her watch much YouTube anymore. But I see like two little girls like playing with Barbie dolls and it's like it's like 35 million views. It's like, oh, my God, like ours is a niche market. We're guiding inventors to license products. So for us to have 50,000 subscribers in a niche market, I'm very, very proud of that. But I think our business could really take off even that much more if we could have 100,000, 200,000 subscribers. And so if you guys can help out with that, tell your friends and family to watch our show. People do that all the time. And just click thumbs up on all that stuff. That'll help the algorithm. And we'd really, really appreciate that. Um, all right. So I remind everybody to take care, keep inventing. Um, I'm going to be back next Monday. Um, I don't know if we'll be doing these Mondays forever, but we started it during COVID and we haven't stopped doing it. And um, I enjoy it. You guys are some great questions. I really appreciate your questions. Hopefully you guys appreciate my answers and we'll catch up with you guys next time. See you. Bye.